Welcome to the NFID podcast, Infectious Ideas. This is Marla Dalton, NFID Executive Director and CEO, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Bill Schaffner. Bill, always wonderful to have you. Good to be with you, Marla. So this year, as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of NFID and reflect on notable public health accomplishments while building momentum for the future, we're talking with many of the humble heroes and thought leaders including former directors of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. Our guest today, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, is one of those previous directors and has been deeply involved in the responses to some of the biggest public health threats in the past 50 years, HIV AIDS and COVID-19. Dr. Walensky stepped down as CDC director at the end of June, 2023. When she began her term at CDC in January of 2021, more than 23,000 people in the U.S. were dying of COVID-19 each week. She oversaw a national immunization program during which more than 80% of the U.S. population received at least one dose of COVID-19 vaccine. An influential physician scientist whose pioneering research helped advance the national and global response to HIV-AIDS, she was born in Massachusetts and raised in Maryland. She is also the mother of three boys, a role that likely helped prepare her for some of the challenges she has faced throughout her career. So Rochelle, first, let me thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you. Delighted to do this. Thanks for having me. So in the spirit of the 50th anniversary of NFID, can you share some of the most significant changes related to infectious diseases that you've seen throughout your career? Yeah, I love to start, Marla, by speaking about HIV. HIV is the reason it shaped my career. It's the reason I'm an infectious disease doc. And when I started as an intern in 1995, we had no treatment. We had very few antivirals in general. And there's just been an explosion of antivirals over the last 50 years, certainly over the last 25 years, 30 years. So that is one. It has, I think, facilitated our treatment of HIV for sure, also for hepatitis C, also eventually for COVID and many other viral pathogens. So that is one big one. A second, of course, is the mRNA vaccine, um, one of the major things that has gotten us through this pandemic and the speed at which this tailored vaccine we're able to deliver, but importantly, like in major investments over the last decades in getting to where we are. Then, of course, there are diagnostic PCR. You know, PCR has allowed us to rapidly detect HIV and hepatitis C and HPV and CMV and many other viruses. But also, you know, the promise of genetic expression for bacterial diagnostics, our ability to potentially predict resistance to best tailor antibiotic treatments so that we can limit broad spectrum use. One thing I think is just important to note here in the list that I'm giving you is the paucity of new work in antibiotics and antibiotic resistance. Well, work in antibiotic resistance, but new antibiotics. And I think that if you look at before the pandemic, so many people, the, the news was the fear of antimicrobial resistance. And I think we have cost challenges and regulatory challenges on the development of new antibiotics. And that is something I think we really need to focus our attention on. Yes. Yeah, so Rochelle, you're part of a generation of infectious disease professionals, just as you told us, who began their clinical training during the early years of the HIV AIDS epidemic. Now, how did that experience shape the future of your work and the decisions you made later about your career? I mean, they were pivotal. They were so instrumental. So I was an intern in inner city Baltimore in 1995, and that was the year not only that we were running research samples for viral loads, 
but also the year of the cocktail of the third drug um, that allowed people to finally be virologically suppressed. At the time, and this still happens with patients who are undiagnosed and present late in care, we were seeing cryptococcus of the heart and CMV of the gut and TB of the brain. And so it became very clear that we had to do really complicated care of infectious diseases of many different organs and very atypical pathogens. And we had to do that in the context of treating the host. And oftentimes that host had really important critical social challenges in the delivery and receipt of that care and even the access to that care. So that led to a whole host of really important infectious disease questions and in areas of investigation, but also to behavioral health and social health questions related to access to care, disparities in care, the impact of rising costs of drugs, and how important it was to really address the most vulnerable of patients who are vulnerable for many reasons, and now a new one, which is the infection with a stigmatizing disease. Impressive. Now, I'm going to say, in preparation for this discussion, we've looked back into your career and noticed that in November of 2020, shortly before you were appointed as director of CDC, you actually co-authored a study in the journal Health Affairs in which you predicted that the success of COVID-19 vaccines actually would depend not only on the vaccine's efficacy and the delivery infrastructure, but also on the public's willingness to be immunized. Wow, that sounds prescient. Can you comment on that now? Yeah, thank you for finding that and raising that. So, you know, one of the things that was very clear in my work in HIV was that even if you had these incredible drugs that worked incredibly well, if they didn't get to the patients, that they couldn't have their remarkable impact. And so as everybody was so anticipating the outcomes of the clinical trials for vaccines, it became very clear to me that people were so wedded to what that number was going to be. Is it going to be 95% effective or 90% effective or 85% effective? And in talking with my colleagues who co-authored that work with me, we kept saying, but doesn't it matter how many people get it? And we haven't done the really important legwork to make sure that those vaccines are getting into arms and that you could actually might, in fact, prefer a vaccine that worked a little bit less well if you had complete buy-in in a population. And so we set out to model sort of the impact of not only how well it works, but how quickly it got delivered and what the uptake was and what the access was. And ultimately, our conclusions were that we really needed to invest now, mind you, this was November of 2020, greater financial resources and attention to vaccine production, to distribution, all of which had to that point been essentially neglected, and really to redouble our efforts to promote the confidence in COVID-19 vaccines. It was going to be very clear that if they worked, they were going to come fast. And we had a lot of work to do to promote the public confidence so that regardless of what that efficacy endpoint was, that we could actually get them into the arms. I think that that work is still far ahead of us. So, you know, I also think it's fair to say that you led CDC during what was arguably one of the most tumultuous times in the agency's history. And in doing so, you I know that you faced criticism that CDC was slow to respond and, you know, may have added to some of the public confusion over the evolving guidance on quarantining and masks and vaccination and boosters for COVID-19. 
So as we move ahead, how can we best rebuild trust in CDC and other government agencies now? Yeah, Myla, thanks for raising this because this was so much of the work that we were doing as we were taking really a self-reflective time at CDC in the agency. Among the things that we were working and are continuing to work, I believe the agency is in this work, is to move our science faster. One of the questions I continuously ask people within the agency is what is going to be the question of tomorrow? And are we doing the work now, the hard work now to be able to answer that question? And if not, what do we need to be doing to be best poised to answer that question swiftly? So the example I like to give there is when I came in, people wanted to know how well the vaccine was working. And we had a lot of work to do to get the infrastructure for our vaccine effectiveness endpoints. And that work happened We've been criticized that other countries were faster to do that work. The day the first MPOX vaccine went into arms, um, we were already setting up platforms to understand how that vaccine worked. And we at CDC were the first country, we in the United States were the first country to look at MPOX vaccine performance. So we had to move our science and get it out faster. We also have to talk to the American people. And we need to provide options towards the implementation of policy. So once we have that science and once it is out faster, how you implement that science in Manhattan may be different than in rural Kansas, may be different than in Indian country, Alaska, and may be different than in Guam. And so we at CDC are responsible for guidance across America. And so can we provide policy options, um, harm reduction options, if you will, such that if you can't do X or you won't do X or you don't have access to X, this is what you can do Y that is scientifically based so that you can protect yourself. And then, of course, I am a student of, I've always been a student of Bill and his communication policy and his communication skills. You know, so much of what we have said is you need to tell people what you know. You need to be very honest and tell people what you don't know. You need to tell people what you're doing and what you hope they would be doing. And then finally, and I think we didn't do this well enough, especially early on, we need to be very clear that all of this may change as we learn more. And I think that people need to recognize throughout COVID, especially, that not only did the science change, but the virus itself changed. And as it changed, we have a responsibility to sort of re-up our communication of what we've learned. Well, let me pursue this just a little bit further, Rochelle, because it's been interesting to hear you and the other former CDC directors comment on the lessons of COVID-19, as well as previous pandemics and public health emergencies. You were extraordinarily forthright in saying that CDC had to change. I thought that was very courageous, and you put in place plans to start those changes. Now, What do you think the biggest barriers are in applying these lessons learned? So thank you. I think that a lot of the work that we have been doing and will, I think, is continuing to happen at CDC is applying those lessons. But one of the things I was very clear with as we were doing those lessons and doing that hard work within the agency is to recognize that all of that work can't happen within the agency alone, that to be a very well-prepared public health system, we have work that we need to do around the country. It is horrible to think about how we were brought to our knees in March, April, May of 2020, 4,000 deaths a day when I started in um, my position. And then we very much want to, I think, as a defense mechanism, want to not remember those times. 
That said, if we don't remember them, then we are not going to make the investments that we need as a country in order to approve upon them. Our public health infrastructure in this country is better than it was when I started, and it remains frail. We have real challenges in our workforce. Some have estimated we're 80,000 workforce in deficit in public health around this country for basic public health needs. We, Our data systems need a lot of updating, monitorization, integration, and data sharing capacity. And our laboratory infrastructure has been really thin historically. So not only do we need to do that hard work at CDC, and that is happening, but we do need investments in that infrastructure. We need resources through that infrastructure across the country in order to make that happen. You may have just answered that, but I guess my question, again, now that you've stepped down from CDC, I'm going to say what most keeps you awake at night these days? <laughs> Mama, I am really trying to learn how to sleep again. <laughs> um, I did not sleep a lot over those last three years. You know, again, as you said, you know, it is a lack of continued investment in that infrastructure that does keep me awake. When people say, are we better prepared? We are because we really put pedal to the metal in getting that work done. But we are nowhere near where we need to be. And yet those resources are drying up or, in fact, often being clawed back. I also think that the workforce in medicine and in public health really worries me. I've been thinking and reading a lot about that. I have loved ones who are entering the field of medicine and understanding the incredible gifts it is as a profession and then recognizing that that profession has changed remarkably, even over the last five years. And what are we doing to bolster that profession? I've been to a few white coat ceremonies and and they're really inspiring, but it does remind us that we need to foster the next generation. And then finally, I would say the speed of change is remarkable. Artificial intelligence, large language models have the capacity to do a massive amount of good in the field of healthcare and in public health. And yet, I don't know that we've done all of the hard work that we as a society need to do so that we can make sure that that capacity is used mostly for good, because there will be challenges that lie ahead as well. So I'll just say it's no it's no wonder you don't sleep much. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rochelle, as you're doing now, you've shared your valuable perspective with NFID many times over the past few years. Let's think about the near-term future for just a moment. Can you share your predictions for this upcoming winter respiratory virus season with multiple respiratory viruses circulating potentially at the same time and new vaccines available? How do we communicate clearly and effectively with the public? Yeah, so I think... Every year, if you are an infectious disease physician, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, every year we worry about respiratory virus season. When one is on clinical service in December, one knows that you're going to be in the ICU a lot, seeing a lot of patients with flu. So I think of this year as no different. We have a tall mountain of a respiratory virus season ahead of us. In addition to influenza and RSV, which we see every year, we will also see COVID this year. We have the tools. We've been saying that we have the tools. We're going to have an updated vaccine, we hope, in the weeks ahead for COVID. We have updated flu vaccines. And now for the first time, we have RSV vaccines, not only for those most vulnerable in the older populations, but also immunizing agents for our youngest and most vulnerable in uh, our infants. So I think that there is a lot of promise. 
That said, we know that vaccine uptake isn't what it should be. So we have a lot of work to do in vaccine confidence and vaccine promotion. And not all of that work is fully funded at this point. So I think that we anticipate that we're going to see a hefty respiratory virus season. I am certainly hopeful and anticipate it won't be anything like the last several years. But I do think that we all still need to recognize and reflex those muscles that we flex in order to protect ourselves and our loved ones. And that includes getting vaccinated and staying home if you're sick and, you know, doing those appropriate diagnostics, whether it's flu or COVID or RSV so that you can get yourself treated. We say hope for the best, but plan for the worst, I guess. (laughs) More concisely punched. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's it's always been difficult for many of us, and I think the pandemic clearly um, raised that issue. But, you know, finding a healthy balance between our work and our home lives. So, Rochelle, I'll ask you, as, as a wife and a mother, how do you find that appropriate balance? And really, what do you do for fun? Well, I will say that I have had a lovely summer spending it with my husband and my boys and my parents. I used to tell my mentees, especially my mother mentees, that those two were new moms, is that we have this embarrassment of riches that we get to do our full career and we get to raise incredible families. It is an embarrassment of riches, but in fact, it's a juggle. And so much of what we do is a juggle. And oftentimes, we can keep every single one of those balls in the air. But sometimes a ball is going to drop. And I just tell folks, don't forget which balls are glass. And those are your family. And so um, I have incredibly resilient family, and I'm really lucky for that. Um, But when they need me and that glass ball is going to drop, I am there for them. I have enjoyed spending time with the kids. I have enjoyed one-on-one time with them, family time with them. I do like to go to the gym. I've been um, catching up on coffees with friends, reading some books that I've that stacked up. A lot of people gave me books to read that I didn't have time to read. So it's been it's been nice to get to reacquaint with some of my favorite things to do. That sounds great. Now, I know you haven't shared publicly what your plans are, but I have to ask you, what's next? <laughs> and whatever it is, we certainly hope you'll come back again to share details about your new adventures here with us at NFID. I don't have any full-time, long-term definitive plans. Just the other day uh, was announced that I will be um, serving as an executive research fellow at the Petrie Flom Center at Harvard Law School um, in a joint fellowship with Harvard Kennedy School and the business school there. So I'm really looking forward to expanding my network, talking to people, teaching some students, mentoring some students, and learning in spaces where I think that there there is a lot of collaboration that can and should be done. I have always found that science is benefited when you're talking to people in other areas of science. um, And that's really my hope for the next several months. I say congratulations. It sounds like a fantastic opportunity. And I think we'll all benefit from that. So Rochelle, before we sign off, I would like to give you the same opportunity that we give to all of our guests. And that is, what is the myth that you would most like to bust? Oh, well, I'm talking to NFID. So that has to be uh, just related to vaccines. I think before COVID, there has been this sort of undercurrent of vaccines cause autism. And, and, and I don't even want to repeat some of these myths because they are so blatantly untrue. I think we really do need to acknowledge that there are very rare but important side effects from vaccines, adverse events from vaccines, and we have a responsibility. And in fact, we have the largest vaccine safety system now ever in the world and ever in our history that can find these needles in haystacks and has successfully done so. 
we need to be aware of them. We need to be concrete and honest about them. And we need to tell people what we know. But I think it's really critically important to recognize that these vaccines have undergone incredible safety and incredible efficacy studies, and that they are overwhelmingly beneficial over their very small risk. And the more and more people who recognize that these vaccines are there to do good and that they have done good and that we are victims of our own successes, because I can tell you that as a practicing clinician for 25, 30 years, there are many vaccine-preventable diseases that I myself have never seen, and that's the way we want it to be. Wonderful. And on that high note, we've been talking today with Dr. Rochelle Walensky, an expert HIV physician and former director of CDC. Thanks again for joining us, Rochelle. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Infectious Ideas, podcast series presented by the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases, where leading experts join us for thought-provoking conversations that lead to infectious ideas. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you'd like more information about NFID, be sure to visit us online at nfid.org. Until next time, get vaccinated and stay safe.